Right, young adventurer, you've defeated the were gang, you've scaled the castle of forbidding desire, and you've managed to finally make your way to the ultimate boss of this fantastic level. And so you present you with your boss fight. Here is Mr. Richard Krause. Why, thank you. I am the tower of unrequited desire. Now, what was that? <laughs> I, liked, I liked that, whatever that was. Thanks. Yeah, so if this was a video game, it would be called Hey All You Zombies. Welcome to our little weekly show. Uh, that was just a nod to the video gamers in the audience. There's always a boss fight at the end of the game. And usually it's, it's kind of, you know, the endings are, are, tend to be disappointing. So, you know, the best way to kind of knock the socks off of gamers is to have a really cool boss fight. I would love to see Richard Krause as a boss fight. The cool thing about boss fights is working out, you know, well, the, the, the big monster starts slamming you around, your, your health bar is going down, is to work out what the weakness would be. Oh. I don't know what your weakness would be, Richard Krause. What part of your body would flash to kind of let people know that that's the area to go for? It lies under my hair, and the, but it's such a helmet. It's protected at all times. My, my only weakness lies right around here somewhere. Would it be, and your superpower, would it be your socks? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, these are pretty good ones today. Let's see if I can, those are pretty good. Those are really excellent. But, uh, you know, there are, there are a certain group of, of people that every Friday, uh, if you check my Facebook and or Twitter page, watch me on television in the morning on Canada AM, and then they're not like, hey, you know, I'm totally going to go see, uh, you know, Lincoln because you recommended it. And wow, what a great thing you said. They're like, I didn't see what socks you're wearing today. Or I love those socks. Or what kind of socks are those? Or those are the ugliest socks ever. There's a lot of sock commentary that happens every single week. <laughs> I love it. So uh, this week we're, uh, we, we, we skipped a week because our, our schedules got interconnected. We had a hard time sort of, you know, finding time to, to get, sit down and do this podcast. So it's nice to be back. Uh, and uh, you wanted to kind of um, uh, tell a little story about something that happened with the Golden Globes because you didn't yeah. get that last week. Now, did you watch the Golden Globes at all? I did. And, it, you know, usually award shows are something I end up regretting that I, I sort of right. watched. I watched because, uh, you know, we know everybody that's in the news industry and so people end up talking about it. So I, I watch it to kind of be into it. But I have to admit that Tina Fey, uh, you know the the comedy that they did that night that was really entertaining. Yeah, no, they did uh, they did a good job. That got off the best line of the night was early on in the evening when they were introducing Catherine Bigelow and they were saying, well, you know, I mean, I'll trust her take on torture because of course she was married to James Cameron for three years. But boom, it was awesome. But my favorite moment of the show happened uh, much later on. So Will Ferrell and and uh, Kristen Wiig come out to present an award for best actress. And they, they said, you know, of course, the, uh, you know, they send over the Golden Globe, sends over all the screeners. And so we watch everything. So we're very familiar with every category. And then, of course, as it turns out, they know nothing about the movies. And they just sort of riff and improvise and stuff. And it was a very funny bit. Funny to everyone in the audience. People are slapping their knees. They're laughing. I'm laughing at home. And then they cut to Tommy Lee Jones, who's just you know, staring like this, not a look of mirth anywhere to be found in this guy's aura. Now, Tommy Lee Jones, amongst people who do what I do for a living, which is, you know, write and or talk about movies and interview actors, he is legendary. He's legendary for being the most difficult actor on the planet. Nobody wants to interview him. I've interviewed him four or five times probably. And of those four or five times, I would count them probably in my 10 most excruciating experiences in this business, right? And it's to the point now where if one is offered with him, I just say no. There's no point in doing this because we'll never air it and he's awful and I just don't want to do it. And I've heard from uh, people that know him or who have worked with him that he uh, delights in making people feel uncomfortable. It's just something that he does. Whatever. To each his own. He can do that. Anyway, so I see the face, though. I see the face, and I think, wow, that's hilarious. That's very funny. And Andrea, the PMC, is uh, sitting with me, and uh, she said, uh, well, that guy, kind of low with Tommy Lee Jones, uh, looks very much like the grumpy cat. And as you know, I'm obsessed with the grumpy cat. <laughs> so I came into my office. Where is it here? There we go. I came uh, into my office while the show was on, and, you know, 20 seconds later, I had made this, and I, uh, I 
you know, I tweeted it online. Uh, and it, here, let me just put that up so you can see. So I tweeted it online, and I just wrote, "Hey, I always thought Tommy Lee Jones reminded me of somebody, right?" And if you look, they look, you know, the, the grumpy cat and uh, and Tommy Lee look very much alike in that. The um, that their mouths are turned down it, in that particular. Mouths, you know, it's all that stuff, right? And I just thought it was an amusing, you know, an amusing little thing to do. Uh, what I didn't realize is how many other people would find that amusing as well. And so uh, I tweeted it, and by the next day, it had been retweeted 22 or 2300 times. Um, I got emails. Uh, I got letters about it. It ended up on the Huffington Post. It ended up on RyanSeacrest.com. TMZ ran it. Uh, it was just sort of all over the place. And, and once again, you know, I, I, I was just sort of uh, kind of tickled to watch it all happen, you know, for one thing, just because – it was just so random, it was just such a silly little random thing to do. But how it kind of blossomed and took a little life all of its own. And, um, you know, I was getting retweets from, you know, places, countries that I've never even heard of. And I just found it so kind of astounding how something like that, you plant that tiny little insignificant, silly, little stupid seed and to watch it sort of blossom and grow like that and how quickly it, it travels from, you know, one thing to the next to one Twitter account. And, you know, people start retweeting and all of a sudden it gets retweeted and retweeted and retweeted. And it was really fun to uh, watch it go, I enjoyed that more than I enjoyed most of the Golden Globes, just seeing how this thing uh, kind of went viral. Yeah, and, and you know, we hear the word viral. We hear of things like Gangnam Style, but it's not quite the same when it, you are the original. When you're point zero, yeah. and you can watch it based on feedback coming back to you, the way that it travels and moves, it's just, it's astonishing. Um, well, it, it really was. And, and again, you know, I mean, I've, I've never... Uh, had I don't think I've ever had anything like that that's been retweeted that many times or put out there that many times. I've had, you know, uh, videos on my YouTube site that have gotten thousands and thousands of hits, that kind of thing. But um, until I discovered YouTube analytics, I had no idea where they were coming from, where the hits were coming from. Then I discovered, it was like, wow, that's cool. People in Spain are watching this. But it was really interesting to see the retweets coming in and to see exactly where they were coming in from. And that's the thing that sort of, you know, reminded me of the just crazy power of this. Now, in this case, you know, we were just spreading a, a silly little picture. But in, you know, in, in, in terms of, of uh, disseminating information, how powerful the tool Twitter can be. And I've, I've seen that photo uh, follow the, real, the, the full path of MEMS uh, on the Internet. In that, you get people who grab it and try to put their own spin on it and right. set it viral again. And so I, I've seen someone who's grabbed your image mm -hmm. and then put block letters on top that said, right. finally, someone who understands me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I saw that as well. Yeah. Uh, and it was random. I was at uh, CTV uh, the other night, and uh, Ken Shaw, who was the anchor of the 6 o'clock news, came up to me and said, uh, you know, uh, I understand that you made the Tommy Lee Grumpy Cat uh, thing. And I said, yes, I did. He goes, you know that we played it on the news here. We didn't know it was you. We didn't give you any credit. I was like, really? <laughs> so, I just think it's so funny. So funny. Um, and, and there's really no other story than that. Other than that's all I like. And then the other thing that I have done that I thought was kind of interesting in the in the gap since we since we've last spoken uh, is I hosted an event with a guy called uh, uh, Amin, uh, or, um, uh, Kapoor, Emil Kapoor, mm -hmm. Emil Kapoor. And my mind went blank just for a second. I've been living and breathing this guy for the last week because I was hosting a very long onstage interview with him. And uh, I did it at the, the Tiff Bell Lightbox, and we, we had uh, clips from his movies, and we did this uh, interview with him, and he was so engaging. Uh, and he's, he's a, a Bollywood star. He's a Bollywood star who is the kind of star uh, in Bollywood that Tom Cruise is only about times four. That's how big a star he is. And uh, oh, that's what a woman, how one woman sort of described it to me because after it was all over, um, this is a, a shot of us on stage. <laughs> so we're just, we're, we're chatting at this point. And, uh, and and uh, he's you know he's very recognizable if you saw Slumdog Millionaire. He is like, who wants to be a millionaire? And he was in Mission Impossible. And he was on Twenty Four. But he's made like a hundred Bollywood films, and he is a super duper star over there. 
but he was charming. He was erudite. He was great. The audience loved him, like loved him uh, in the kind of way that, that I kind of didn't expect. I mean, I knew how popular he was. I didn't understand the level of worship that went along with that. And uh, as I was saying afterwards, a woman said to me, well, it's like Tom Cruise only times four, you know? And uh, so after it was all over though, so we talked for a very long time. We did a long Q and A session after I finished my interview with them. And, you know, people were just genuinely thrilled to speak with him and he was gracious with everyone. And then finally, of course, we're getting ready to leave the stage. And somebody says, hey, can I take a picture? And I mean, I figured he's been down this road with that. He knows what's going to happen or not. I don't know. We had security, definitely, because we, we needed it. But my instinct was to get him off the stage and get him out of there because there were a lot of people there. But no, he was gracious. He went down. And of course, you take one picture, then you got to take another. And then this happens. And, and uh, you know, just as far as you can see, there's people wanting to, you know, put their arm around him and here, let me put that back up. Uh, put their arm around him and and talk to him and 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 uh, you know just get a little piece of him. And he was great. He took I don't know. He was certainly the most photographed man in Toronto that night. That's for sure. Uh, taking hundreds of photographs with people, having a word to say with everyone, and it was a really kind of lovely moment. And I've done a lot of these, and I'm not sure that I have uh, done a lot of them with people who are as big of stars as he is. And I've done a lot of them with very big stars like Brad Pitt, Madonna, and people like that. Uh, I'm not sure that I have seen someone who has big a star as he is that would do that, that would wade down into that crowd, put his arms out like this and just have one person after another go under his arm and take pictures. It was really quite astounding. He was, he was really lovely and, and had really interesting things to say, not only about uh, his films, but about, uh, you know, he even talked about the, the, the gang rapes in Delhi that have been happening lately. Wow, okay. He talked about it. It was a really wide-ranging conversation, and it was really fascinating, and he was really interesting. And it was one of those nights that I was really glad to be the person on stage sitting opposite uh, this guy uh, to be able to, uh, to sort of prod the conversation along in any way that I could. It was really fun. So that's what I've been doing since we talked last. <laughs> well, sounds like a blast. Uh, and, you know, and, and th those moments are, it's hard to describe just the, 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 the vibe that you're getting from all the people in the room. It's not just the fact that you have a large gathering of people, but there's something that people are giving off that, that goodwill, that buoyancy. Well, that's the thing. The goodwill and buoyancy in that room was like, it was Monday night, Monday, January 21st, yeah. which is apparently scientifically been proven to be the most depressing day of the year. Um, there are, you know, it's, it's, Four weeks past Christmas. There's nothing else coming until mid-February. Uh, it is usually cold and crappy and gray. And apparently, you know, January 21st at like 3.30 in the afternoon is the most depressing time of the year, literally. And, uh, and, and to walk into that room, and there was certainly uh, a buoyant, excited feeling in that room. That was really fun to be a part of. Oh, very, very cool. Um this past weekend, I missed, uh, well, when I say I missed, it, it's a, sort of something I wish that I could go to, but I never get to go to. Right. Uh, let's see if I pull up here. Da, da, da. Now, I'm going to find a better way to have all these windows open. Here we are. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> this past Saturday and Sunday uh, was a major event in San Francisco called the Edwardian Ball. Uh, and so I've put up the um, the the sort of the slideshow on their main website there. This has been an incredible event that they hold in San Francisco, and it's it started off as being for the steampunk community in San Francisco. Right. And initially it's, it's kind of like Burning Man. You have a lot of very artistic people who have – uh, grabbed a certain aesthetic. They, these are artisans and dancers and people who craft and create their own things. It was just kind of an excuse to kind of get together and, and sort of show off. But it's become this big ticket event because not only do they have dancing, not only do they have uh, drinks that you can, like any kind of dance night, but they have performers that are up on stage. They have DJs. Uh, and they have people who bring just fantastic events that you can kind of take part in. It's just wildly elaborate. Every year I always sort of visit their website and follow their, their video cool. feeds. Like there's, you know, dancers with snakes. with snakes. Yeah. They have fortune tellers. Uh, there's one company that comes in and they make a, a, a carousel, like a merry-go-round out of bicycles. 
And then you have people that uh, do fortune tellers, and then you've got sort of sideshow games and oddities, and, and it's just amazing the people who get really dressed up and go to these kinds of events. Yeah. Uh, and I'm always like, one day, one year, I'll, I'll, I'll fly out to San Francisco and be part of this magical night for right. just two nights. But I, I mean, it's not just sort of the steampunk element of it. Uh, obviously, it just looks like a, a great sort of event to be part of. But the concept that you can go and have a Saturday night or a Friday night out that's not just about drinking and getting drunk and dancing, but that you can have all these kinds of events to them that I find really, really compelling and something yeah. that we as a society are kind of lazy about, you know? That's crazy. Look, I love the hair on these ones, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's and a guy wearing a fez. Anyone in a fez gets a big thumbs up from me. Well, and, and I, you know, I was happy to see that here in Toronto we had something very similar to that with the Royal Ontario Museum. They ended up doing a, a series right. of parties called the Friday Nights uh, Live at the ROM. And it's the same idea in that you have dancing, you have drinking, but they create all these little events that you can kind of go off and take part of. Um, I know you were following me on Twitter. One of the first ones they did was they projected old Ray Harryhausen films That's, up against the skeleton bones of the dinosaurs. Such a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. And as, a, as a Harryhausen geek, uh, that to me was just like such a great idea. But they also have, um, like when you go in, they've got couches set up where you can sit down and watch documentaries about, you know, the environment and stuff. They had uh, a room where there was a, a transvestite singing jazz up in the, the, the actual top tower of the building. The, one of their last parties, they actually had Lululemon come in and do um, like dubstep yoga. You know, where they'd have like fusion trance music and you could perform yoga. They have you know, like pulled pork sandwiches. They had lobster rolls. This whole idea of, of trying to create something that is, goes beyond the usual dance club experience. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just fantastic. Well, I mean, I think it, it, well, it's interesting because, I mean, I know if you go to the entertainment district downtown, there's, you know, lineups to get into everywhere you couldn't drag me down there. Now I'm old, so I have no reason. They don't want me down there. But, but you know, there are uh, large portions of the population that want to do something other than just hang out in nightclubs. And, you know, even when I was nightclub age, I didn't want to do it, you know? No. Uh, so it's interesting. It's interesting that they're using their imagination a little bit and putting it out there. I like it. Yeah, I, I find it's sort of the motivation is different. I find with the, the nightclubs that we have sort of in Toronto, and it's probably true of, of cities around the world, that the dynamic is more set up towards status. You have yeah. all these people lined up waiting to get yeah, in. When you finally get in and then you get to the VIP lounge, you can sort of feel like I'm, you know, privileged, better than everybody else. But an event like this doesn't have – any kind of tiers or layers to it, everybody comes in and everybody gets to dress up and everybody gets to participate. And it's more about having a creative night than it is about, you know, bragging rights the next day, which is yeah, you know, that's very, cool. very cool. Yeah. But I, I wanted to mention that because as an introduction to this little interesting story, uh, you have around the world uh, a number of services that are out there of companies that will come in and help you understand what the next trend is going to be. Uh, you know, top companies like Xbox, and when they created the Xbox, they had a company sit down and go, green and black is going to be the two colors. And and that year, like everybody from Nike had green and black shoes, the Xbox was green and black, all these companies are coming out with green and black. That's, you know, they follow these predictions. Uh, even the television companies will be told this year, aluminum is in, and so all the televisions will be aluminum. Aluminium, as I yeah. like or white, you know, because of the iPhone came out and then everything was ended up being kitchen white. And there's all these kinds of things that are happening. Well, IBM has a very similar service in which they take a look at all the buzz and the chatter on there and they make predictions. And just recently they made a very strange prediction, which was that steampunk, which is that style we just saw in the Edwardian ball, is going to, within the next year, by the end of this year, become uh, mainstream. And mainstream in the retail sense. Right. So you're going to see at Le Chateau, you're going to see uh, elaborate hats with metal wind glasses and, you know, things like that, sort of like Edwardian style, slightly future, futuristic 19 or 1890s. Sort of anachronistic, yeah. Uh, but like places like Walmart, like let's see if I can uh, get at the, the little section here that they explain. Uh, da -da 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 -da. 
The amount of steampunk chatter has increased 11-fold, they say. Since 2010, more than two dozen U.S. department stores and specialty retailers have become steampunk savvy. During the next two years, IBM predicts that steampunk will shift from low production, high-cost craft, craft manufacturing to mass production. Now, I kind of hope that this doesn't come true because if it does, it spells the end of steampunk as a as a as an underground cool movement you know once aunt hilda in saskatchewan you know is buying it for her christmas outfit to go to the office party it's over yeah once the pet stores start having little steampunk outfits for chihuahuas yeah that's, once, you know that's when it ends right there <laughs> <laughs> and I completely agree. I mean, it's odd because uh, amongst the steampunk community, they were a little surprised by this. Yeah. They kind of felt that it had already happened because you had uh, people like Justin Bieber had his steampunk music video. Sort of everyone's kind of dipped their toes into it. But this is different. This isn't about, you know, um, the Paris fashion runway sort of adopting steampunk. What they're saying is you're going to get to mass production where it's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, where it's, you know, it's just going to be pounded out by these big brands that are going to, you know, turn it into another. And it, I mean, it happens to all sort of the underground trends. Eventually they become so homogenous and watered down. They kind of lose their meaning. Uh, one of my favorite sort of takes on that is with punk rock. Right. That in the 1970s, punk rock actually meant something when it came. It was about taking, uh, knocking out the feet of all the millionaire uh, rock and roll and metal bands that had their own airlines that were taking them yeah. around the world and sort of, you know, bringing it back to the basics. And then over the Ooh. years, punk became so homogenized. It was no longer scary. People were no longer worried about it, that you end up with bands like Blink-182 where they're just singing about their girlfriends. And has their own, and have their own private jet. Which is yeah. completely the least punky thing ever. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, it, it would seem that what IBM is saying is that's about to happen to the steampunk movement. I hope they're wrong. Yeah. I, I would love to see sort of the Edwardian ball just kind of keep its own little isolated thing and be always there. And, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I you know it, it just so often happens that once you know something hits Main Street, it, it's over. I, I have a friend of mine, you know, a while ago, say to me, "Well, I know exactly what's going on in music because you know I read the New York Times every week and I read their music reviews, and then I go out and buy all this new music." And you know, on one level, yeah, absolutely, you know, you go out and you buy new music that you've read about in the newspaper and stuff. But I would suggest that by the time it hits the pages of the New York Times, it's over. Like in terms of it being. Uh, a significant movement in music or whatever, it's done. It's no longer an underground movement. It is, you know, something that uh, has been co-opted a little bit by, you know, a major brand. And all of a sudden it's not going to be the thing that it was. The thing that made it great was that, it, you know, for steampunk, for me anyway, apart from the cool style and the imagination and all that stuff, is that what is an outsider thing? And once the outsiders, there's more outsiders than there are insiders. And, you know, I, I love, you know, the, the idea that you can exist in a little bubble outside of the, of, of, you know, what people expect of you. But all of a sudden, when everyone has access to the stuff that made it cool and different and unusual, uh, it's no longer cool, different or unusual. Well, it's and it's, it's in many ways an expression of being different. Yeah. You know, it's an it's an it's an expression of a minority sort of aesthetic or taste, yeah. and so once it becomes you know something that somebody's wearing on a Sunday afternoon while they're at the laundromat doing their their, their laundry, it no longer it sort of loses that outsider status. So yeah. Well, uh, criticism, film criticism, is something, and well, just criticism of of any kind really, uh, is something that. Uh, you know, has gone from being uh, something that a, a small number of people got paid to do, whether it was write restaurant reviews or film reviews or whatever, to being really democratized. You know, and now uh, if you go to a restaurant and you have a bad meal, well, you go to Yelp and you write about it. Um, or if you see a great movie or a bad movie, you start your own blog and you write for thousand words about your experience going to the movie theater but you know it, it, everyone has a voice now everybody has a voice not just those of us who get paid to have a voice um but what comes along with that i think much like what we were just talking about the sort of democratization of style or or uh, a trend of any kind is that 
intrinsically, it loses a little bit of, of its integrity. And so what's happened now, I think, uh, with things like Yelp and, and stuff, uh, you know, if you can think of a funny line that's negative, well, you're going to like, well, I'm going to write that because it's funnier than saying I had a great experience. And I, I think it really, it, it, Yelp, even though I, you shouldn't really take those reviews terribly seriously, I don't think, um, uh, but it can really harm small business owners, many of whom are restaurant owners and that kind of thing. And and I, 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 I'm not a big fan of it. And not just because I'm a, I'm a paid critic. I think that there is a place for non-paid critics and criticism, but I think that you have to be careful how you use that criticism. I, I uh, subscribe to a, a code of ethics, and, uh, and, and, and I'm very, very particular about that code of ethics that I use when I sit down to review something. Unlike Brad Newman, who is an entrepreneur, and I'm just, uh, he's a, has a Manhattan Beach company called Reviewer Card. And this, uh, this guy charges people $100, mm -hmm. and you get a black, looks like a credit card that says Reviewer Card on it, and it's got some other type and printing on it. And it is uh, an ID uh, that he gives out for $100 to prolific online reviewers to help them get better service than everybody else. So the idea is you go into a restaurant or you go into a hotel and you say, here's my uh, reviewer card. What this means is that I'm going to be writing about this on Yelp. What this means is I'm going I'm to have a louder voice than maybe some of the other people in here uh, after this meal is done. So, you know, shoot me some quesadillas. Uh, going to a hotel. And this guy talks about it in this article, which is in the LA Times. You should probably have a look at it. We'll post the link on, on our site. Yeah. Even though I don't feel like giving this goofball any publicity. No. Uh, but, but you should read the article. And then read the comment section afterwards. It's interesting. But um, <clears throat> what he says he does is literally says, well, I'm going to write about this. So, uh, you know, I want a better rate on my hotel room uh, or otherwise I'm going to give you a bad review. Give me a great rate and I'll give you five stars. Uh, you know, give me a free appetizer and you're going to get a great review. Be and, and you know that I'll do it because I've got my reviewer card. And it's extortion. I think it's completely unethical. Uh, and what it says to me is that it, it, it's, uh, it, it is a betrayal of the trust of people who read those reviews because, of course, the reviews aren't going to say, well, I used my reviewer card and got a bunch of free food, so I'm giving this place a big thumbs up. It's just going to – the, the reviews are very likely – I mean, I don't know. There's only, he hasn't sold very many. He sold like 100 of them. Um, uh, and so I don't know whether or not, you know, this, this will actually have any long lasting effects, but, uh, I, I don't think we're going to see people bragging about having one of these cards in the reviews, uh, because it, really if a Yelp review is almost meaningless already, by the time you say, I've got a reviewer card, it becomes completely, absolutely, uh, you know, irretrievably useless as information about the place that you, that, that you've just dined at. And I just think it's a horrible, horrible trend. I mean, you know, we've all heard stories about, uh, you know, Sony had trouble a few years ago that they made up a reviewer and and, uh, and gave their own movies rave quotes, you know. This is the best blockbuster movie of the summer, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out that blah, blah, blah never existed. And he was quoted on a lot of different uh, <laughs> um, ads. And they apologized. They were contrite. Somebody or uh, maybe a whole department in marketing was fired. I don't know how it all, but, but you know, steps were taken against that because people take this very seriously. It's a betrayal of trust uh, to extort a good or bad review uh, from, from someone. And I just, uh, I, I just think that uh, this shows how, uh, you know, in some ways, I'm uh, you know, interested in your opinion on this, how, you know, amazing the net is in so many ways, but how, uh, it, how in this case and in many others, it has led to an erosion of ethics and, and, uh, and, and just sort of, I think, frankly, I wouldn't go so far as to say decent human behavior. Yeah. Well, what we're seeing is um, sort of two different approaches. Uh, one is that anything that kind of serves the purpose of being a review, and, and it could be a small little 
thing on Yelp or just up or down or even writing detailed reviews like yourself. I, my feeling is that there should be an educational component to it. That the reason that I would write, uh, read a review of a, of a real restaurant critic is that they're going to teach me things like when you go to a Chinese restaurant and you're looking for uh, you know chicken, that it's about the the crispiness of the skin right, yeah, 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 yeah. you need to look for you know that that those that kind of information that empowers me the next time that I go around that I can make decisions and understand what the the process is of what it is I'm consuming so I make better choices but then there's the other approach that we've seen that has been leveraging the power of the internet which is to kind of look at the world in that base primitive lizard brain style where you're looking for a quick advantage right. You know, the, the way that animals in the wild try to, you know, not use as much energy to get the food that they need uh, you know, and find a quick advantage over everybody else. And there's a lot of that that's been going on with all these different systems that apply towards not just review but towards status. And we've seen a lot of people who have set up systems similar to what you've mentioned, you know, a black card, a, a black extortion card. I mean, you couldn't yeah. choose a better color for it. Yeah. Uh, to There are guys out there who – I have taken advantage of the fact that you have this entire culture of people who are building stuff at home and trying to get their book or their music CD or their little craft. And so people will come along and say, hey, if you slip me some cash, I'll write a five-star review on Amazon for you or that kind of thing. We've seen that. And then the other thing that bothers me is um, services that you can pay to inflate your rating that's out there. Right. So, for example, there are <laughs> – there are services you can spend money on that will artificially inflate the number of followers that you have on Twitter. I know you don't do that. I don't do that. I think it defeats the purpose when you, you spend that. But I know people who have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and well, then one of the, on YouTube, same same thing on YouTube. Like clicks on your your uh, videos and things on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sony and I think Universal Music got um, uh, slapped on the hand by YouTube because they were artificially inflating the number of views. Uh, and then I see it as a trend on the App Store where I will see some obscure app that just hit the iTunes Store because I have the ability to see it the moment it hits and it automatically has five five-star reviews and it's always five five-star reviews. It's never six. It's never four. It's always five five-star reviews. And I've actually, you know, exploring the net, have come across companies that say, hey, you pay us a certain amount of money, we'll give you five five-star reviews on your app. I mean, it's and that erosion is, I think, the key word there in terms of what it's doing. It's just sort of taking apart the whole system and just devaluing it. And we're losing that important component of education where guys like yourself and, and myself are there to not just dictate whether you should buy something, but to give you, to empower you with information that allows you to kind of be smarter as a consumer. Well, it's useful information. And here's a line, and this, this whole article will, you know, make you a little crazy if you take the time to read it all. But um, the writer, the writer of the article says, I can only hope that businesses see it for what it is, a shameless bid to extract personal favors under the threat of internet ruin. I can only hope that they politely inform reviewer card holders that they're entitled to the same treatment as all other customers. Then Newman, the guy that created the card, says, I don't know, if a restaurant brings me a free quesadilla and gets a good review for it, what's the harm? <laughs> and you know, I, I say, well, the harm is, is that you're you you may have gotten a free quesadilla for sure. You may yeah. have gotten a free quesadilla, but anything that happens after that free quesadilla is absolutely meaningless. In 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 the real world of criticism, in the real world of opinion, anything that happens once you've accepted something for free on the when you say. Uh, I'm going to take this for free and I will give you five stars. If you give it to me for free or I'll give you, you know, four and a half stars because five stars looks a little bit too uh, convenient um, is, is absolutely meaningless and doesn't, uh, isn't worth the uh, pixels that it's printed on in, uh, in uh, Yelp. I just, I am disgusted by this. It's phony currency. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're no longer offering something. What's the harm, which is a phrase I hear a lot. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about this, not just in articles, but in real life, uh, what's the harm? Well, the harm is that, you know, you're not offering anything of value. And no. so you're taking away from the system. You're not giving back to it. And the, the important thing in life 
Because you know, I, I hate it when people are so materialistic. When they're they're they tend to be shallow. When it's all about what can I get for myself? And I remind them that when you die, all the things that you acquire, they get assembled into little cardboard boxes and are sold off at a garage sale. Yeah. The only thing that really remains when you die is what you gave back to society because that's the legacy that people celebrate and think about afterwards. And so if you spend your time while you're alive giving and, and you know things that aren't necessarily tangible, then when you die, you will be well celebrated. All the crap that you gather, other people are just going to take that and they're going to sell it off real cheap. So it really doesn't matter. That's the harm at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just posted the link. I just posted the link to that, and I, I, I have to make it clear. Anyone that actually looks this guy up and buys one of these is on my shit list because I don't want to. I don't want to send any business to this guy. I want. I want to expose it uh, by having people read this because really, it's just truly awful. Well, here's the thing. What's the motivation for for uh, restaurants to actually treat you well? Because there's no qualification here. The only qualification is that you're willing to buy. The yeah. card. So this guy, this creep who's selling these cards, he'll sell them to anybody, which does not qualify you as a reviewer. And even then, like, you know, you're still having to compete against other people who might be wittier, who might be funnier yeah. on Yelp. And, you know, there's new services popping up. Yelp is even trying to compete against others. So, you know, it's not going to hold its value for very long. All you're doing is making one jerk a little richer than he, he deserves to be. And what they say, there was a study recently done about this, and I don't know, having worked in restaurants and things uh, years and years and years ago, uh, this isn't any great surprise to me, but people who deliberately treat uh, waiters and bartenders poorly, um, apparently it's it's a, a sign of huge insecurity and, and you know, they've, it, it, the idea, and I always used to say, you know, you get these people that come in and, and treat you like, you know, like a piece of trash. And I would always say to myself, you know what? It's because they got dumped on all day and they have to come in and talk to someone who can't talk back to them. Unless you're the bartender, which I was. And then you just cut them off and throw them out. That's what you did. I've got the booze. So I've, I've got, got the booze. You want. You're never rude to the bartender. It's just, it's, 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 it, you know, I have what you want and I have lots of it and I'll give you pretty much as much of it as you want, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the difference because under the SIP program, you know, anyone who serves alcohol is empowered to yeah. kind of, no, 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 no. I've determined that you're slurring your words. I think yeah. you've been you know, overserved. I can cut you off. That's it. Oh, oh listen. Uh, oh yeah, no, and even I mean, before SIP, I, uh, the the SIP program for people who don't know is you, you take a course and you learn how to spot drunks and you know learn when to cut off people and all that stuff, all the legal stuff that goes along with it. Um, I haven't bartended like that. That's much later than I, I haven't bartended in like you know I was a young man when I was doing it, and um, but I I would cut off people for being rude, absolutely. No, nope, you've had too much drink. I haven't had a drink. I don't care. You're out. <laughs> like <this. laughs> I was lucky though. I always worked in busy places, so I didn't really worry about it that much. But you know, I, the world of Yelp uh, and and uh, and you know all the reviewer cards hadn't been invented yet. And that's probably a good thing when I was bartending. Yeah, and if you're ever uh, wondering about who inflates their their numbers. Uh, a hint is on Twitter, look at the number of people that somebody's following and how many people they're being followed. Because often those services insist that you sort of follow back. So you may uh, see somebody who's got 10,000 followers, but they're following 10,000 people. Right, right. You know, you want to look at people like Roger Ebert. Who I was going to say, Roger's a great example. He follows like two people and he's got whatever, you know, 15,000 followers. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I, I don't really follow all that many. I mean, I've got, you know, thousands of followers and I, I follow about 500 people um, and uh, some people I follow just because they make me laugh there's a guy called the sulk and he's one of the writers on family guy and all lots of it but the sulk is funny he's very funny so I, I don't really even know who he is other than that I don't even know what his real name is but the sulk so um, uh, he's good so I follow people like that uh, but you know often it's just sort of at my whim if I if, if I see a retweet from somebody and, and it's a tweet that makes me laugh, I'll follow them. Yeah. And so far, there's about 500 of those. 
Well, and that's the value of Twitter. Unlike Facebook, where you have to follow, uh, be friends back with everybody that, that comes to your account, Twitter allows you to be selective and you can craft a really valuable stream. That's what makes Twitter. There, there are too many people who look at Twitter as just being a marketing platform, where it's mm -hmm. like, I need to have as many numbers as possible. No, that's not how it works. It doesn't have to be no. that way. Well, it, it doesn't have to be that way. You have to have, I mean, if you are going to use it for marketing, you have to have the right, the right followers, not the most followers. Well, I want to, um, uh, I guess we'll blow out the show with a really cool item that just hit the net. There's a, a short film uh, circulating around on, on YouTube called A Room for Wonder. Uh, we've talked in the past about Guillermo del Toro's fantastic Bleak House. Mm -hmm. uh, and you had, you've gotten to talk about it in your interview where he, he yeah. describes how being a man who starts to get paid really well, you know, his movies have done well, that he has used his money towards um, cultivating an unusual taste and oddities and cool sort of, you know, items that he has to the point where he had to buy an entire house just to do it. Yeah. And now we're finding out, I've kind of known about this, but again, it's one of these things, these houses, they tend to be private, and now there's this trend where people are starting to allow little tours of it. But there's a video game designer, and I, I, I guess now we're talking about somebody that you don't know. His name is Richard Garriott, uh, and in terms of the video game world, he's an old generation game designer. So we're going back to the age of Pac-Man, back to the age of, of computer systems sitting on tables. Oh my uh, he, God, he must be 200 years old. <laughs> in the world of technology, yes. Yeah, yeah right? Uh, he invented a, an, a, a PC game called Ultima, which was kind of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and it was tremendously uh, successful, especially over in Europe. I always, I wasn't sure just how successful it was for him, but he is a multi-millionaire uh, today. Even though it's hard to say that he's had a hit in the last ten years, it made a lot of money for him. And he's been one of the few people lucky enough to go up in outer space through the Russian space program, all sorts of things. So it turns out he is also one of these uh, creative types that cultivates a collection. And he's now allowed this uh, video tour to go online that shows his room, his house, which is called House Britannia. So Guillermo del Toro has a house. Richard Garriott, he has a house. Uh, and it's an amazing video. We'll post it online. But he has different sections that are devoted. So he has one section that's all uh, scientific. You know, he's got a Tesla coil. He has his spacesuit that he wore in outer space. He's got, uh, he actually managed to get one of the original Sputnik cases that was used. I just, I can't imagine having that in a home. I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. But then he also has a section, um, which I like, which is the oddities. Let's see if I can pull up one of the photos here. I grabbed a couple of stills. This I thought was so interesting. It's made of elephant dung, right? It, it's a gorilla skull Ooh. that has been sculpted and enhanced to give it this wild sort of African look. But actually, the, the nose, they say, was sculpted out of gorilla dung placed on top and dried. Uh, just <laughs> a truly kind of eccentric thing to have, right? Yeah, you don't want to rehydrate that. You want to hope it doesn't get wet in your house. <laughs> uh, and then he has, uh, you know, a Fiji mermaid. Yeah, probably the most authentic, they say this in the video, the most authentic Fiji mermaid you'll ever see. Yeah, I mean, this is something that uh, people have, have you know, that yeah. natives used to craft these out of various animal parts and then sell them to right. scientists and explorers, and it's become quite, you know, the favorite of the gaffes that are out there. Um, but the section I really love is that he has an entire room full of automata, um, which th this stuff is so cool. Yeah. Automata has been around going back before, I don't know, maybe 200 BC. Specifically, it started in China. No, they say in this video it started in Egypt, but it actually goes before that. Uh, there were some that were happening in, in, in um, Greece. But he has managed to pick up a couple of choice uh, items from like the 1700s, but also like Guillermo is becoming a patron to artists who are sort of bringing this stuff back. So sculptures and stuff like that. So what we're looking at here is a dragon uh, by a, a modern day artist who's actually created this little diorama. It's of a knight fighting a dragon. And the whole thing is all mechanical in design and just beautiful the way it works. And then the great part that they show is that behind the dragon, it actually shows a little gremlin guy who's pulling levers and switches and making the whole dragon thing kind of move it's just it's it's fantastic and, and they've got uh, one of conjoined twins dancing 
which is absolutely incredible. It's and as I emailed you after I saw it, it's like it's beautiful but dirty at the same time. There's something that's not quite right about it. But yeah. it really, I mean, it's an astounding place. I mean, I can't really imagine. Years ago, I went to a place called the Cabaret Mechanical Theater uh, in Covent Garden in London, and I just pulled up the web page there. Uh, that's what the web page looks like. Uh, it's called uh, just uh, www.cabaret.co.uk. And uh, it's really amazing. It's just filled with the kind of things that uh, um, this guy has filled his house with. And it's really, I mean, astounding. You can spend easily an afternoon uh, just hanging out, watching, you know, little wooden men wash themselves, operated by gears and cogs. So cool. <laughs> well, the, the man who did the conjoined twins is a modern-day artist named Thomas Kuntz. And I found his website. I'm going to pull it up here. And um, I'll put the links to this as well. But he's got some photos and some videos of some of his work. The one that's on the left of the old man. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I, I want to know more about this. But it's of a, of a Parisian artist who's working late. And he starts to drink absinthe. And as he drinks absinthe, these, go, these green specters sort of the fall. Fairies, the, the absinthe green fairies probably. Well, and it, these apparitions that start to visit. So, I mean, if you see the video, the, there's a woman, and that's in the photo, who sort of suddenly appears at his side and starts whispering in his ears. And then the next time you see a corpse sitting next to him and having a bit of a conversation with him. Um, very because creative they, stuff. Well, they, they say that, uh, uh, you know, the old joke about seeing pink elephants when you drink too much. Uh, when you drink too much absinthe, you see the green fairy is the, is the legend. Well, and absinthe has come back. They actually uh, were serving it at the Edwardian Ball. Well, yeah, but it doesn't have the wormwood in it, does it? No, because well, that's the hallucinogen, I think. There is, um, there's, a, there's a couple of different approaches to it. Right. So one is that there have been companies that have been selling something they claim to be absinthe. And that stuff comes from Europe and apparently it's like paint thinner with green dye in it that you should just avoid at all costs. There's stuff that's really, really nasty. But there are two uh, gentlemen in the United States who are competing and both of them have managed through, I guess, various auctions to get a hold of absinthe from the 1800s. And then using uh, chromography have actually taken a look at what the, the, the ingredients might be. And they've sort of cultivated their or distilled their own clean version of absinthe that they're selling in the U.S. now. And apparently it's, you know, if you had to uh, use the little sugar cube on a spoon, that yeah. was the bad absinthe. That was the stuff that wasn't really sort of genuine. Now what they have apparently is, is good stuff. And it's kind of an odd taste to it. It's, yeah, it, it, I, I've, I've had some of the fake absinthe. Uh, I guess it was fake because it wasn't particularly good or interesting really. But um, here's an absinthe fountain. And uh, these things are beautiful. There's a bar in Victoria, BC. I go to a film festival out there every year. And uh, they have the most elaborate uh, cocktail setup. And one of the things they have is this absinthe fountain. And it's very much like this one. It's not exactly like this one. But you see the bell where you put the absinthe in. And then there's the two little taps on the side. And then you drip it a drop at a time through the sugar cube into the glass. <laughs> so that one's pretty cool. And then there's this one which I kind of liked as well. That's pretty beautiful right there. Oh, beautiful. Absinthe uh, fountain. So, but again, absinthe, the thing that made uh, Toulouse-Lautrec crazy and then go cut his ear off. So drink at your own risk. <laughs> <laughs> drink at your own peril. Drink at your own peril. Yeah, and, and you know, um, ultimately your own imagination is probably the most powerful drug that's out there. Yeah. Stay yeah. up late and just kind of, you know, visit yourself. That's right. Yeah. Get yourself deep in the dark. Well, thank you very much. That's the end of this week's Hail You Zombies. That was fun. That's it. That's a little it. Uh, zombie talk for the people. Do you have anything else you want to add? Or no, I don't think so. I uh, just looking around to see. Uh, no, I think I'm. I, I think I'm clear for this one. I uh, nothing uh, for uh, what's on Richard's desk. Well, what's on Richard's desk? Uh, well, this has moved over from a shelf onto the main part of the desk. It's uh, a bear that has watched me write everything I've written for the last fifteen years or so, and he usually sits high above things. Um, no, Is that no your, your critic's voice? That. Uh... That's, that's my conscience reminding me.
uh, not to ever use a reviewer's card. No, there's really there's there's not that much new here. I've been interviewing people. You know, nothing will make you. Uh, this you know, years ago, I remember doing interviews. I'd go to New York or LA and and interview the entire cast of Lord of the Rings, whatever. And uh, I remember being in New York one time. And there being so many interviews for one of the Lord of the Rings movies, plus another whatever movies that I was doing, and uh, that I had to buy another suitcase to bring all the tapes home, right? Because some of the, the tapes were beta tapes back then, right? And they, they ranged in size from, you know, the size of a book up, and some of the big ones, the two-and-a-half-inch tape, were, were big. Um, and this week, I did a, a bunch of interviews. On Monday, I interviewed uh, Julianne Hoff and Josh Dumel for their new movie, Safe Haven. And then I interviewed the two stars of... Um, warm bodies, this, what I'm calling a zomcom, a zombie romance. Uh, Nicholas Hoff and, and um, or Nicholas uh, um, Hout and uh, Teresa Palmer. And the thing that amazed me about this is after having done those interviews, that's what I walked away with. And wow. like, you know, and uh, I was able to shove the tapes in my pocket and walk out of the room rather than having to go buy another suitcase to, to carry them all home. So that's interesting right there. That's Josh Dumel and Julian Hoff and some other people. Wow. But it, but it's kind of crazy now, you know, they, how, how much things have changed. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you know, uh, four or five years ago, we were still lugging tapes across the country, uh, you know, everywhere we went. And now, um, you know, even this. Uh, so here's the... <laughs> The, they, these uh, four gigabyte uh, cards right here are now apparently, I'm told, uh, considered clunky in the business because everyone's using these little eight gigabyte ones now. <laughs> <laughs> so like you show, you know, I was given one of these, and I'm like, oh my god, it's huge! Look at that, it's so you know, it's so unwieldy. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the new thing, and, and soon. It'll just be like, yeah, we'll just email you the interview. I'm sure it'll be, oh, you know, yeah. soon. You'll you'll leave. You'll have a little login account number. That's yeah. it. You get back and go into the website and yeah. You don't even have to do it yourself. Just hand it to the the editing team. Here you go. Take care of it. Yeah. All there. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. That's about all that's new on Richard's desk. Um, yeah. The queen, the solar powered queen. Have I shown that before? Uh, it's not sunny enough here today, but uh, her hand waves. And does this uh, it, when it gets sunny? She's got a little solar panel on her purse here, and she waves when it gets uh, nice and sunny in here. That's cool. That's that's the you know that's not really new, but it's uh, you know it's something on Richard's desk or in Richard's area. You know? There you go. <laughs> well, I, I want to say thank you because uh, in the past couple of weeks we got a bunch of new subscribers to okay. our YouTube channel, which is my account. Yeah. But, and I want to say thank you for that because that actually does help the show a great deal. Uh, in the world of, of Google and YouTube, they, they look at the number of subscribers far more than they do the number of views. I think right, right, right. as we as, as, as sort of users, we took take a look at a lot of the number of views. But in the world of Google Analytics, they, they actually value subscribers. So I say thank you because yeah. that really does help us. Yeah, uh, and by all means, visit our website, heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can give us suggestions of the kind of things that you would like to see us talk about. We're open to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let us know if you would use a reviewer's card. I'm obsessed by this. I'm, I'm so angry about this. I'm obsessed by it. So I want to know. Let me know. Sounds good. All right. All right, then. We'll see you next week.